This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Doug Varkoch, the president of Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or METI, and CIIS professor, talks about the social and cultural aspects of extraterrestrial contact. This event was recorded on June 7, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you very much. As, um, as I was growing up... Uh, I um, grew up on a farm uh, about 10 miles away from a town of 2,000 people in the far northern part of Minnesota. And so on a cold winter night, I would go out and look at the sky, far away from any city with any light pollution, and I could see thousands of stars. And so at some gut-level sense, I had the intuition that with all of these stars, there must be life out there somewhere. Tonight, I'd like to look at the scientific search for life beyond Earth uh, to see whether there is evidence to back up my intuition and to think about how we would go about seriously searching for that life, especially intelligent life. Uh, And to give you a preview, I'm going to argue that In addition to searching for signals that might be coming in, we need to get more ambitious in our search and develop a a sustained, ambitious transmission project of our own to let the extraterrestrials know that we want to make contact. Now, the intuition that I had as a child is uh, similar to the idea of a Greek philosopher named Metrodoros, who writing over 2,000 years ago, that to consider the Earth the only populated world in infinite space is as absurd as to assert that in an entire field sown with millet, only one grain will grow. Well, how does Metrodoros' intuition stack up with the scientific evidence that we have? Well, the good news is that all that we have learned about the universe in the past centuries and decades, I think, is moving toward a confirmation. To be clear, I don't believe that we have yet discovered evidence of life, microbial life or intelligent life in the cosmos. But I think the evidence that we do have is pointing in the direction of being optimistic. For example, now when I look up at the sky at night, I know that those couple of thousand stars that I can see are just the beginning and that in our galaxy alone there are over a hundred billion stars and that there are billions in in just our galaxy the Milky Way galaxy and there are billions of galaxies in uh, the universe so there are a lot of stars that there could be planets around but one of the most incredible discoveries in the last 25 years is that Now when we look up at those stars, we know that virtually all of them have planets around them. 
We didn't know that 25 years ago. The only planets we knew around any star were the planets in our own solar system. And it's not enough for a planet to be orbiting another star, but it has to be orbiting at just the right distance that it's not so close that if there's any water on it, it would boil off or so far away that it would be frozen, but it has to be in what's called the Goldilocks zone, where it's not too hot, not too cold, but just right to support liquid water. Uh, and the good news is it looks like up to one in five solar systems has a planet uh, within its habitable zone. Um, and in fact, in our own part of the galaxy, not far away, there's a, a star system called TRAPPIST-1 that has at least three planets orbiting within its habitable zone. Uh, and the, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is about 100,000 light years in diameter. That means the fastest known speed that we know, the speed of light, it would take light 100,000 years to travel from one end of the galaxy to the other. Uh, and this star system, TRAPPIST-1, is very close to our so solar system. It's only 40 light years away. So it would take 40 years for the light to get there, 40 years for the light or message to get back. Just today, we got more good news from NASA as it announced that its Curiosity rover had discovered organic molecules in a soil sample that's three billion years old on Mars. Uh, now, we don't know whether that is from uh, uh, prior life that's now extinct, uh, or whether it's simply the basic building blocks of life um, that we have confirmation uh, were present in early Mars. And in fact, we're also they also announced just today the discovery of uh, methane uh, in the Martian atmosphere. And again, sometimes that is created through processes that have nothing to do with life, but sometimes um, it is a byproduct of life, so a sign of life as well. And when you combine those two announcements from just today with the decades of observations that show that the basic building blocks of life are strewn throughout interstellar space, we have a lot of places where life could exist and the basic stuff that you need to make life everywhere. And so the big question is, do they come together and actually form life? And that is the big question that we're trying to determine. And the mindset that we need to find out whether there's life out there is the same mindset that those astronomers who were looking for planets around other stars needed decades ago. Because remember, um, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was not at all clear whether there even could be uh, other planets around other stars. There have been theories of how planetary systems form. Is it the coalescing of the primordial material from the origins of a star system? Is it the chance encounter of two stars as they pass near one another, a freak accident that would happen almost never and would make it seem as if planets are very rare? Well, we now know because there were scientists who were willing to search for something that they had no evidence exists at all, that we now know that there are planets everywhere. And so that's the mindset that I would encourage us to take 
as we ask the next logical question, now that we know there are planets everywhere, is there life on any of them? And has it evolved to such a level and has it become so motivated that they're willing to start a conversation with us? Now, the idea of having a conversation with extraterrestrials also has a long history. You can go back to the early 19th century and the famous mathematician Carl Friedrich Gauss is said to have suggested that you know, if we want to communicate with intelligent beings on the moon, back in the 1820s, it was reasonable to think that there could be life on the moon. We didn't know that the moon didn't have an atmosphere, that it was too small to keep an atmosphere. So it seemed reasonable that there could be life on the moon. He said, if we want to communicate with any astronomers on the moon, let them know that we're savvy about geometry. So he suggested going uh, to the forests of Siberia, and carving out some geometrical shapes uh, and planting fields of wheat to show the Pythagorean theorem. So this is, a, this is a theorem that the geometer Pythagoras suggested that says that if you take the two sides of a right triangle and square those sides, it's equal to the square of the hypotenuse. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And he said, let's show that, not with words or symbols, but sh show it actually directly on the side of the Earth, which works nice if you're trying to communicate with the moon because it's close enough that they might actually be able to see it. And about the same time, a similar idea was suggested by an Austrian physicist, Joseph von Littrow, and he said, okay, well, Gauss's idea works fine during the daytime when you can actually see the forest, but you could do something similar at night. Uh, so go to the Sahara Desert carve a huge canal, maybe 30 miles in diameter, fill it with kerosene and light it up, and it would let the extraterrestrials know that we're savvy about another part of geometry too, the importance of the circle. And it's interesting that, in fact, that image of the circle that von Littrow suggested is the first image that was included on the Voyager recording. This is a recording that NASA sent into space uh, in the 1970s, and I'll get to it in a, in a few minutes in more detail. I just want to note right now that any extraterrestrial who encounters this as it's traveling through space will notice on the front cover this diagram of a circle, and if they get the correct format of the encoded message, that'll be the first image they see, that same image that von Littrow wanted to signal from the Sahara Desert. Well, we don't count on being able to signal from the Sahara Desert or to make contact with any life on the moon or, in fact, anywhere within our solar system. We hold out hope that there might be microbial life on uh, one of the moons of the outer solar system, perhaps. Maybe there was life on Mars at some point in the past. But if we really want to contact intelligent life, we need to go to other stars. And the start of this attempt to identify intelligent life from other star systems started in 1960 by an astronomer named Frank Drake, who used a radio telescope at Greenbank, West Virginia, to listen for radio signals from uh, any civilizations that were transmitting 
uh, in our vicinity from two nearby stars, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Aridini. They're both sun-like stars. He figured, well, we know that our sun was the right kind of a star to at least allow intelligent life to develop on our planet. Let's start there as we look for extraterrestrial life. And uh, he looked for this uh, signal. And the goal of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is to find a signal, a radio signal, that stands out from all of the cosmic static as something distinctly artificial. Because the same telescope that Frank Drake used to listen for extraterrestrials is used by other astronomers to map the distribution of hydrogen in our galaxy. So um, the stars and galaxies give off radio signals, um, and those same tools can be used to look for radio signals, but when you see a radio signal from a natural object, like a star, it's think of it as being spread out on a radio dial. But what we look for in SETI is a signal that's at one spot on the radio dial, because that's something that nature cannot make. So if we discover it, um, we'll know that we have found ET. Now, when Frank Drake did his search, he was limited by the technology of the day. So he had to choose a specific single frequency. And so he said, well, what is the frequency that we and the extraterrestrials all know about? And he chose one particular frequency uh, that corresponds to the frequency that hydrogen emits radiation at when it makes a transition from one state to another state, 1,420 megahertz. And he reasoned that hydrogen, as the most abundant element in the galaxy, would be known by astronomers um, everywhere. And so, since he had to choose, that was his choice. Now, in that early experiment from 1960, he was testing a pretty limited hypothesis. It was basically the idea that if he points to two stars, he's going to get a signal. If you think about it, for that experiment to work, practically speaking, it would mean that all of the stars out there would have had to be transmitting continually to us. Uh, and then we would be able to find them. Well, he learned, to no one's surprise, that that's not the case. But he did create the foundation for the search as it has moved ahead over the last now almost 60 years. Um, and so uh, instruments like the SETI Institute's Allen Telescope Array uh, have looked for uh, signals from tens of thousands of stars. Uh, the Breakthrough Listen Project, uh, centered out of the University of California at Berkeley, plans to look at a million stars uh, in the next decade. So those are reasonable numbers to detect intelligence if it's out there and trying to make contact. Now, in the earliest days of SETI, we used only radio telescopes because that was all that most people could conceive of as being a reasonable way to communicate. The exception, the dissident uh, in alternative methods, uh, was Charles Towns, who got the Nobel Prize for inventing the laser. And he suggested back in the early 60s, just as said he was taking off, well, why not send brief laser pulses? And all of his colleagues scoffed and said that that's completely ridiculous. 
Um, we don't have the ability to do that. No civilization could have the ability to do that. It would take too much energy. But as the decades passed, by the 1990s, we recognized that we now have the ability ourselves to generate powerful billionth of a second long laser pulses. And so now uh, there's an alternative form of SETI that takes its place alongside radio SETI, optical SETI, looking for very brief nanosecond laser pulses. Uh, and our organization, METI, which stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, also does SETI. So we're cooperating with observatories, uh, this one in uh, Panama, another observatory in uh, Michigan, and we're building a global network of modest-sized telescopes because the beautiful thing about optical SETI is you can have a very credible search on a telescope that's of modest size. And by adding the electronics to be able to detect these brief laser pulses, for a modest investment, um, you can turn a serious amateur telescope into a scientific instrument for optical SETI. So the addition of optical SETI to radio SETI represents a, a typical sort of investment strategy that you might use when you're thinking about uh, what, how do you invest your money if you don't know how s the stock market is going to do or real estate. Um, where do you decide to put your money? And one common strategy is to diversify because, you know, maybe the stock market's going to be great, but if it really crashes, you'd better have something else that can be seed money for building into the future. Well, a similar strategy is being used now in SETI. And, you know, in the same way that just because you invest in real estate, that doesn't mean you give up on stocks, no one is saying that radio SETI is obsolete. But now we're also doing optical SETI. And what I would argue is that as we continue to mature in our search for intelligence in the universe, we should add one more strategy, which is um, active SETI. Instead of passively listening for signals, either radio signals or optical signals, that we should be sending powerful, intentional signals to other civilizations to let them know we want to make contact. And so our organization uh, is called METI. Uh, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, we're headquartered uh, here in San Francisco uh, in the financial district. And our goal is to promote innovative work in the search for life beyond Earth, uh, including SETI, but especially messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, sending intentional signals. And if you go to our website, medi.org, you can see what our priorities are. And at the top of the list, it's to establish an ongoing transmission project. And so today I'd like to tell you a bit about how we have launched that project and where it fits in, how it compares to past more symbolic transmission efforts in the past. And I'd like to start with uh, the most famous radio message that has been transmitted from Earth. And it was, in fact, conducted by Frank Drake. So this was in 1974, 14 years after he conducted Project Ozma, the first SETI search. He also transmitted a signal from then the world's largest radio telescope in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. Uh, and it was transmitted uh, to 
commemorate the refurbishing of this telescope. So the surface had been redone. There was a there was a big celebration uh, to mark uh, the remodeling of it, and so then the uh, as the commemoration ceremony was drawing near, Frank thought, you know, wouldn't it be a wonderful demonstration that even a civilization as young as ours that's been in this game of interstellar communication for such a short time has the ability to reach out to the stars? And so they'd already set the time and the dignitaries were coming in and scientists from other universities. And so the question was, what's overhead um, at two o'clock that afternoon? Because um, the construction of the Arecibo Observatory, it's this huge dish, a fifth of a mile in diameter that's built into the side of the Earth. And that part of the telescope doesn't move. And so the radio waves come into this big dish carved into the mountainside, and then they're bounced into the center part where they come to a focus and they're detected by a radio receiver. And that can be adjusted a little bit. So you can point essentially overhead and a little bit to either side, but you're limited in what you can point to at any given time. And one prominent target that stood out was a globular cluster of stars called M13, Messier 13, um, that is 25,000 light years away. So the signal that was launched in 1974, um, if we get a reply, it will not be for another 50,000 years. So that was the, the target of that transmission. And the content of the message uh, was a description of what we hope that we and the extraterrestrials have in common. So it was a, a brief message, 1,679 pulses of two slightly different radio frequencies, was sent at 10 pulses uh, per second. And when it's properly reconstructed, you'll get a picture that the hope was a scientist on another world will understand. So at the top of the image is our numbering system that shows how we count from 1 to 10, but there's no reason to think that the aliens are going to have 10 uh, fingers like we do. So instead of being written with the numbers, Arabic numerals, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, like we use in our daily life, it was written in the simplest numbering system of ones and zeros, so which you know, we can graph as little black and, and, and white squares. And so this message that if it's properly reconstructed uh, will show some math and science that we hope we and the extraterrestrials have in common. And the clue to decoding it is that this number 1,679 um, is the product of two prime numbers. Prime numbers are numbers that can't be divided by anything but themselves and, and one. So um, there are 23 columns, 23 is a prime number, and there are 73 rows. And those are the only two numbers that you can multiply together to get 1,679. So that's the clue to the extraterrestrials to how to reconstruct this message. And if they're interpreting it the way we hope they do, they'll find out, here's how we count. And then right underneath that, there are the numbers 1, 6, 7, 8, and 15. That's meant to be a clue to chemistry. Uh, so those are the atomic numbers, how many protons there are in, in the chemical elements that are important to life here on Earth. 
hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus. And then a description of how many of each of those um, atoms there are in different parts of the DNA molecule. And then there is a, a double spiral, of the double helix of DNA. All of this points downward toward the thing that humans most often understand. Oh, there's a stick figure of a human being. That I can recognize. Uh, to one side, uh, it is the height of a human being. Of course, the extraterrestrials won't use yards or inches. But we do have in common the wavelength of the signal that was used to transmit. And so that's our unit of length. And then on the other side of the human being is the population of Earth. This is the, this is the part of the message that would have changed most. It was 4.2 billion at the time. Now it's over 7 billion. And underneath that, a, um, a diagram of our solar system with the Earth moved toward the human being to suggest that's where we come from. And finally, at the bottom, a diagram um, of the radio telescope that was used to transmit the message. Now, in the same way that the basic principles that Frank Drake identified in Project Ozma are still being used by astronomers today as we search for signals. So um, identify signals that can travel between the stars um, and uh, find ways to detect artificial signals that stand out from natural signals. So too, I think, to the basic principles he identified uh, in this message from 1974, they kind of provide a guidance for what we do today. But you know, that first radio search we, we're no longer limited to looking at one frequency. We can look at billions of frequencies with much greater sensitivity. So our searches today are a trillion times more powerful. Are our messages even 10 times more sophisticated? Probably not. But what I'd suggest is that even while honoring the same basic principles of trying to find a common language, because the extraterrestrials, we can't count on them knowing English or French or Swahili, but if you're going to build a radio telescope, that means you're a good engineer. And it seems like whether you're living here on Earth or in a star in the M13 cluster, if you're going to be a good engineer, you probably need to know some basics like astronomy, um, like chemistry, uh, and some basic arithmetic. So those are the principles that we come back to. I think what you can say, though, is that there's no reason to be as condensed as this message. I think the numbers 1, 6, 7, 8, 15 are a little bit cryptic as a description of chemistry. So the messages we're creating to describe chemistry are actually explaining the periodic table of elements. So you can see more of the patterns that these numbers show as you talk about the full range of chemical elements. An even more ambitious uh, message was sent, not by radio, but by NASA on its Voyager spacecraft. Uh, and this was the golden record that was attached to two of the Voyager spacecraft uh, that were launched in 1977. And their primary message, uh, their primary mission was to explore our solar system. Uh, so they flew by various planets within our solar system. But when they were done with that mission, they drifted endlessly into space, and they'll be doing that for millions of years. And so on the off chance that one of these is picked up by an alien intelligence, there is um, 
a recording that includes greetings in 55 languages, um, musical selections from around the world, images that show some scientific concepts, some uh, photographs of the variety of life and culture and humanity uh, on our planet. Some of the same concepts uh, that we saw in the Arecibo message are also included in the Voyager recording. So a description of chemical elements important to life on Earth, hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, now with a diagram um, showing how many electrons there are in various shells of uh, those atoms, and then how those um, atoms are combined together to form complex molecules that are the backbone for our DNA, the genetic material of all life on Earth. But there were other parts of that Voyager recording that were more reminiscent of uh, the science fiction movie from the 1970s, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where a mothership came down to Earth and we had this interstellar symphony. Um, now, no one's counting on the aliens being able to come to Earth, but some of those same concepts of music make it a reasonable starting place to communicate something about our, our human sense of beauty. And this, too, is not a new idea. So in the 17th century, there was a, a literary genre of imaginary voyages um, where a protagonist would go to a strange new world and was often used as a way of uh, providing a, a social critique and commentary on culture. Well, one of these... Um, Tales was written by a novelist named Cyrano de Bergerac. Now, usually we think of this as a character uh, in a play, a, a guy with a, a big nose. He was actually a, a real-life novelist, and he wrote about a voyage to the moon. And so to get his protagonist, Gonzalez, to the moon uh, back in the 1600s, um, he did what everyone knew was the reasonable way to get to the moon, which is to strap a chariot uh, to a group of geese and have it take you to the moon, because that's where people thought geese went uh, uh, in the winter time to the moon. Well, and when Gonzalez got there, he encountered these beings who communicated with one another in a musical language. Now. It was probably a reflection of Jesuit missionaries um, having gone to China and learning about tonal languages, but it was expressed in the idea of musical tones actually conveying some meaning, in this case, different letters of the alphabet. Well, on the Voyager recording, music was uh, recorded on one side in audio, and then on the flip side, there were images of Earth, and, and the closing images uh, were a string quartet and the musical score that then when you'd flip the record over were played in audio. So there was an attempt to draw a link between our graphic way of portraying music uh, and the actual music uh, that is encoded. Now, there was a sampling of music from around the world, um, but this was a NASA project, so there was a bias toward the, the Western classical tradition. A lot of Bach, a lot of Beethoven. Um, Johnny B. Good was included, Chuck Berry's uh, piece. 
One piece that was not included was anything by the Beatles. Now, they were, they were offered a slot for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but they turned down the offer for copyright reasons. Now, I, I don't know what they were thinking. By the time this is intercepted, copyright is not going to apply. Um, now, the, the good news is, in this universe, there are second chances. So when, when NASA celebrated its 50th anniversary about a decade ago, um, the Beatles song, Across the Universe, was transmitted to the North Star in celebration. So we do have Beatles off in space. But as you think about it, um, a, a lot of our Western classical tradition is written in a 12-tone scale. Is there any reason to think that that's something that aliens would be familiar with at all? Well, uh, there's a, an astronomer named Sebastian von Herner who said, you know, if they value the same sorts of things in music that we do, that might not be such a dumb idea to have 12 notes. And what he was talking about is 12 notes is actually a nice number of notes as opposed to 13 or 11. If you have as a goal a music that you can play in different keys starting anywhere, because what you need is a compromise so that chords will sound good no matter which of those 12 keys you find them on. And it doesn't work well with 11. It doesn't work well with 13 or 14. It works beautifully with 12. It's a good compromise. Five is a good compromise. And we see pentatonic scales in a number of cultures. Uh, and we also see 31. Uh, and we see that in a number of um, Indian musics. It was actually suggested by the uh, astronomer Christian Huygens as an, an interesting musical scale. I would hate to see, though, the hands of some creature that could play on an instrument like that. But when we think about um, music, we should think about what in our, uh, if there is something that the extraterrestrial will get from our music, what is it? Now, I don't think they're going to get all of the emotional connotations and meaning and richness that we do. But as you think about just those basic characteristics of how many notes there are in a scale, that would tell the extraterrestrial something about how acute our hearing is. Because what that means is we can carve an octave up into um, 5 or 12 or 31 notes. And as you look at the way that we sequence the sounds of having a certain series of notes and then anticipating the next one will follow the same pattern, it says something about our brains, how we organize music. So there are cognitive models of music perception that I think we can include in future uh, interstellar messages. Well, it seems only fitting to us uh, at METI that as we got ready for our first transmission, uh, that it would be in partnership with a music festival. So our organization started in 2015. And in October of 2017, uh, we had our first transmission as part of a celebration of the 25th anniversary of the Sonar Music Festival. Uh, and it is a project uh, that was initiated by the, by the Sonar Festival uh, and they contacted us to create the mathematical and scientific tutorial that would help the extraterrestrials understand the rest of the message. And so this is a, a, a radio transmission that was sent from a transmitter in northern Norway, Tromsø, Norway. Uh, it's a remote location. It's actually better known to most people as 
a place where you can get a, get a great view of the northern lights, aurora borealis. In fact, that's the main thing that this instrument is used for. Radio signals are bounced off of the atmosphere, some small fraction of them come back, and that tells us about the composition, the structure of the northern lights. Well, we use the same instrument, but now instead of targeting our own atmosphere, we targeted a nearby star. Uh, and the target we chose um, was the closest star that's visible from that location. So this is north of the Arctic, cir uh, north of the um, uh, Arctic Circle, and it was uh, the nearest star known to have an Earth-like exoplanet in its habitable zone. The 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 star um, is called. Leuton's star, named after the astronomer that discovered it. But of course, all stars have these complicated names too, so it's, it's called GJ273. And we were targeting particularly the second exoplanet that had been discovered around that star, GJ273b. So that's how you'll see this project described, sonar calling GJ273b. I'd like to tell you a bit about how we constructed our message and how it compares to the Arecibo message of 1974. And, and there are three broad differences between the message we sent and this prototype of message that was transmitted from Puerto Rico. The first is we did not attempt to be encyclopedic. I mean, if you think about it, the, the range of topics included in the Arecibo message was immense from a description of our numbering system chemistry, biochemistry, uh, the structure of DNA, population of Earth, diagram of our solar system, the technology, what we look like. And our concern is that by trying to say so much in such little space, you may end up getting nothing across. And so instead, we used a different strategy of trying to say a few things, but to say them very clearly um, and in greater depth. And we were inspired by the model that um, Gauss laid out of something as simple as a triangle. And what we were astounded to discover is that if you use a little basic arithmetic, you can actually begin describing the radio signal itself. So one of the problems of the past messages, whether it's the, the pictures on the Voyager or the pictures embedded in, in the Arecibo message, is that it assumes the extraterrestrials can see and vision has been wonderful here on Earth. I mean, it's evolved 40 times independently. But we also live on a planet where we have a very clear atmosphere and the light gets through well. What if this intelligence on another world lived on a very world with a very murky atmosphere? So we wanted to create a message that would be meaningful even if you didn't have a sense of sight. And we did it simply by starting to count. So we sent a series of pulses, pulse, pulse, pulse. Pulse, 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 pulse. So counting one, two, three, four, five. And then pairing that with a binary representation. Well, why, why go binary? Why not just send pulses all the time? Well, that's great if we're always talking about small numbers. But once you get into the millions, I mean, that's going to take a long time to send a million pulses. So we actually use the more compact binary notation after we have explained clearly and given examples of simply showing counting by sending the number of pulses. And then 
once we have a way of creating symbols to show numbers like one, two, three, four, five, we can also create symbols that show um, other things like arithmetic, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, simply by giving a bunch of examples. One plus one equals two. Two plus three equals five. And so by giving examples, we teach the rudiments of mathematics. Now the nice thing is, once you have described simply how to add numbers and multiply them and divide them, you can start talking about the Pythagorean theorem. Because remember, um, all we're doing when we're talking about these right triangles is you, you take the length of one side, square it, that's just multiplying it by itself, add that to the square of the other side, uh, and then that equals the square of the hypotenuse, uh, this angled side. And so the simplest example is the numbers 3, 4, and 5. 3 times 3 is 9. 4 times 4 is 16. Add those together. 9 plus 16 is 25, and that's what 5 times 5 is. And so we did that and sent a number of examples. That, you know, if you, if you stay with numbers that don't have any fractions, just integers, numbers like 3, 4, 5, there aren't that many combinations uh, that are relatively low numbers that you can give to give all of the what were called Pythagorean triples, three numbers that show the Pythagorean theorem. And so we sent that, um, 3, 4, 5. 5, 12, 13, 8, 15, 17. So a series of examples. And then the next, and I think perhaps the most elegant thing, is that once you can simply describe the length of one side of a triangle divided by the other, we're doing trigonometry. So this is ninth grade trigonometry. And when we show how those angles change over time, we're describing the sine wave. And so the core of our message was to talk about the only thing that we and the extraterrestrials have in common, the radio signal they detect from us. You know, I, I, I'm so envious of people who design messages that can be sketched on a spacecraft and you hope the extraterrestrials intercept them and they have them in their hands or tentacles or whatever. Uh, but instead, we have to limit ourselves to the signals themselves. And so that's what we focused on and our emphasis was on describing the things that we could change. We could change the time that we sent the signals, the duration. We could change the frequencies that we transmitted at. And so our tutorial focused on the basic physics that any uh, astronomer should know if they can detect and understand our radio signal itself. So again, the contrast with the Arecibo message is rather than trying to communicate everything, and risk communicating nothing, we put our emphasis on communicating a few core concepts well. A second difference is in the distance. Um, as I mentioned before, the Arecibo message targeted a cluster of stars 25,000 light years away. Our target, Leuton star, is a little over 12 light years away. So that means it will take a little over 24 years for a round-trip exchange. It's still a long time on a human time scale, but nothing in comparison to the 50,000 years. So our strategy is to target the nearest stars so that there's a possibility of a response back within a generation. 
And then finally, uh, the last difference between our message and the Arecibo message is that we designed it for SETI scientists on other worlds. So our SETI protocols for listening for signals require that if we get something that looks good, it's not enough to see it once. That to be a skeptical scientist, we need to see it replicated. We need to make sure that, you know, it's not a glitch in our system. It's not a hoax that some enterprising graduate student has perpetrated. And someone on a separate telescope can see the same thing that we have. And so the Arecibo message was sent all during that one commemoration ceremony. We sent our signal um, three times a day, and then we repeated that 24 hours and 48 hours later. And as we continue this process into the future, we'll send it months and years later as well. So that's necessary to have confirmation that what you've sent um, really is a signal. It would be unfortunate if extraterrestrials got our message and thought, well, that was a glitch, but what, what do we make of it? We didn't see it again. So that's what we did, sent the same message three times, um, but I've used the Arecibo message to describe it. Um, in fact, it's a, a more intangible because it's not visually representable. Now, the whole idea of transmitting is a controversial issue. I mean, no, no one less than Stephen Hawking has said, whatever you do, do not transmit to the extraterrestrials. They may come to Earth and devastate our planet. And when someone um, with that much esteem issues a warning, you need to stop and think about it. But there's one thing that Stephen Hawking and others who've raised the concern of an alien invasion have not taken into account. And it's this, um, that if you look at the increase of our own ability to uh, create radio telescopes. Over the few decades that we've had them, they have increased remarkably in their sensitivity. And if we extend that out just a couple of hundred years, we ourselves will have the ability to detect the kind of accidental TV and radio signals that are streaming off from Earth. Um, and there's no way that we can be quiet. So, so the key point that those who think it's dangerous to transmit overlook is the fact that any alien that can threaten us by coming to Earth to do us harm could already pick up I Love Lucy. So there's no way to be quiet. And so our goal then is to say, let's try to reset the conversation so that we're not judged solely by the sitcoms and what comes across in the nightly news. And so that we can say that there is also some sense of rationality uh, on this world. Now, if we do make contact with another civilization, we will know that they are much longer lived than we are. And the reason I say that is because we've had the technology to communicate uh, at interstellar distances for as long as we've had radio, so less than a century. If that's the case everywhere in the galaxy, that you have the technology to communicate with other civilizations for a century and then you either annihilate yourself in nuclear war or you turn inward and you're not interested. Um, that's a very short time. A hundred years is a very short time in a galaxy 13 billion years old. And so it, it's, if that's the average age of civilizations, a hundred years, 
it's as if in the course of an entire dark night, there are two fireflies and each flick on for just a moment. What's the chance it's going to be at exactly the same time? It's virtually impossible. The only way we'll make contact with another civilization is if they've been doing it much longer than we have, um, either transmitting um, or listening for our signals. Well, if the, if the aliens already know we're here, if they've already picked up Gilgan's Island, then why bother transmitting? By transmitting, we're testing a hypothesis to help explain why we haven't made contact yet. Uh, and it's a hypothesis called the zoo hypothesis. So imagine we go to the zoo and, you know, we're looking at a bunch of zebras and they're maybe talking with one another and just communicating with one another. And then we go on to the next animals. And so that, the idea is that maybe the extraterrestrials are actually more prevalent than we think. They're watching us even from nearby stars like Leuton star, but they're just not saying anything. What happens if we go to the zoo and one of those zebras turns straight toward us and starts pulsing out a series of prime numbers? That's going to establish a very different relationship with that zebra. And I think we would figure out a way to reply. And so that's, uh, that's the key motivation uh, of sending intentional messages to test that hypothesis about whether the aliens are out there, but they're simply waiting for us to take the initiative and let them know we want to make contact. But there are other reasons as well. So if the goal is not simply to let them know we exist, but to communicate something intelligible, then it makes sense for the less advanced civilization to start talking and put the burden of interpreting on the more advanced civilization. Now, the way we usually think about interstellar communication is that uh, if there are scientists on other worlds, it's, it's like they're climbing up the same mountain. So climbing up a mountain is like getting toward a purer and more complete understanding of the way the universe really is. And we've climbed up the mountain partway. But if we're 100 years old as a technological civilization, if a civilization's been doing it a million years, they've climbed up the mountain even further, and all they need to do is turn around and see where we are, and they send us this message that has a bunch of prime numbers and um, uh, chemical elements in terms of atomic numbers, just the way we would do it. And if, in fact, they went up that same side of the mountain and followed the same path that we're on right now, then that works. But what happens if, yes, science is coming to a progressively understanding of the universe, but you start out with a different starting point? And in fact, that's what we would expect, that in a different physical environment with a different history and a different culture, even if you have a progressively more accurate science, it could be quite different from our own if you climb up the opposite side of the same mountain, or it could be even more different if you're climbing up a different mountain range. So it's uh, maybe another way to look at it is we're in a situation where you are trying to communicate with some creature on the other side of a door, but you don't know what it is. You don't know if it's a chimpanzee or a dolphin or a hyena or a butterfly or a worm. Who is going to be in the better position uh, to send the first message? I mean, can we really think of an all-purpose message that any animal here on Earth will understand? 
That's what those who expect the extraterrestrials to send us Encyclopedia Galactica are expecting. I think it's more likely uh, that we should expect the less advanced civilization to communicate as best they can their understanding so the civilization that's been around and done this many times can say, oh, that's a class K-12 civilization. They have a fixation on binary digits. Let's send them something that they'll understand. So I think if you're really focused on not just knowing they're out there, but knowing what they're saying, there's a big advantage to us doing our best at explaining what makes sense to us. You know, when we think of extraterrestrials, we often imagine that they're going to be these altruistic creatures like E.T. in Steven Spielberg's movie. They come here to Earth. They're looking out for us. And I, I think that's the assumption behind passive SETI, that the extraterrestrials, older and more advanced, are going to look out for our well-being. Now, there's a certain plausibility about that. I mean, we've seen altruism in multiple species here on Earth. We see it in grooming behavior in chimpanzees. Uh, we see vampire vats. Um, sharing blood with one another. So if a vampire bat goes for more than a couple of days without feeding, it dies. So when you do get successful in feed, you share it with others and you can all live as long as you can cooperate. There are ground squirrels that will give warning calls that make them more likely to be the target of birds of prey. They're more likely to get killed, but they can save their relatives in the process. So we see examples of altruism here on Earth. But can we really expect an extraterrestrial with whom we have no shared genetic background to sort of put its arm around us and take care of us? Well, you know, I hope so. So I don't rule out that possibility. And so that's why we too are doing SETI. Every night we're looking for those laser pulses from another civilization, and I hope that's how they try to make contact. But what if they don't? What if, in fact, they are expecting us to take the initiative. You know, if, if we think about where we fit in this galaxy, what our stage of development is, I, I, I think you'd have to say we are a, a technologically adolescent civilization. And what better way of describing an adolescent but the words me and now? And, and that's what we've very reasonably wanted to do as we've designed a SETI program. We want something that can benefit us immediately. And what I would suggest is what started as a great half century of strategy as we were just starting out is something that we might consider expanding. So that we're not just thinking about what we ourselves in the short run can gain, but what we can provide to other civilizations uh, and to future generations of humans in a project that may well go beyond a, a single generation. It may be that there is no one at Leuton Star, and we need to repeat this process of targeting a hundred or a thousand or a million times. And that's a project that cannot benefit us directly, but it could potentially benefit future generations of humans and of extraterrestrials. Sometimes people talk about interstellar communication as an attempt to join the galactic club. What I find so unusual, though, is no one ever talks about paying our dues or even submitting an application. That's what active SETI does, and it may just be our way to make first contact. Thank you.
You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.